Uh, this is Lindsay Miller, and you're listening to the Arkansas Times Week Interview Podcast on Friday, January the 7th. On this week's edition, we're going to talk all about the Omicron variant and all that it's upending. We'll also talk about Little Rock Police Chief Keith Humphrey in the headlines again, this time because he fired his gun while responding to a disturbance on New Year's Eve. And we'll probably talk about some other odds and ends. There's a lot going on. I'm joined, as usual, by Max Brantley. Afternoon. So uh, let's let's dive right in and and talk COVID as we have done so much over the last almost two years now. Uh, I think there's some hopeful signs that in the year, and then all of a sudden Omicron. All of a sudden Omicron just went crazy, and and I don't think they've done comprehensive testing, but there doesn't seem to be any doubt that that's what's causing the surge in cases in Arkansas because it's so easily transmissible. And uh, through Thursday, we had three days in a row of record numbers of new cases, almost 8,000 on Thursday. We don't have today. We're doing this early Friday afternoon, and we don't have uh, the new cases today. I assume it'll be another big day at a minimum, but I do have the hospitalization numbers, and they've now top 900 are moving toward 1,000. And, and that's the important point. I mean, Anthony Fauci says, you know, it's not just new cases because there is some indication, particularly if you've been vaccinated, that Omicron isn't as serious as the Delta variant was. But it's still, certainly if you're unvaccinated, it can still be serious. And if you have un- underlying conditions, it can still be serious. And it clearly is creating additional hospital pressure. And that's a problem because hospital staffs are depleted as well. And so we've got a rising number of people in the hospital. I've got very few empty ICU beds. And if the trajectory continues, it's really going to be a problem for the hospitals. In some other states, it's already a disaster level. The sad thing, of course, is, is that Arkansas really isn't doing anything about it. I mean, they're made some steps to get higher testing done. And all, all that really does is tell you if you've got it or not. And so may, more people may know they have it. But the ability to do anything about it is somewhat limited. They're, the therapeutic drugs, most of them don't work on Omicron, and the one that they think does is in very short supply. And we still have this notion, I, I think if people who are asymptomatic test positive, we're going to see a continuation of what the theme has been in Arkansas for almost two years. People just reject the severity of it, and they won't wear a mask, and they won't get vaccinated. Our vaccination rate is still among the worst in the country, and our mask compliance rate is terrible, just based on my own observation from going around Little Rock, which I think is better than most places. So, uh, and the the results are about what you'd expect. Cases are ballooning in the public schools, and, and numbers of public schools are having to go back on at least some select basis, sometimes district-wide, to having remote learning, which isn't the best way to go to school, but it's uh, the best way to avoid mass transmission of a virus. So it's altogether not a good situation. Yeah, well, as a parent of two elementary children, (laughs) after after two weeks of the holiday break to, to go back to school for one day and then go to virtual school is, is not pleasant. But I know, I mean, they had one understood. day of mass exposure and then went virtual, yeah. which was kind of, which was kind of weird, too. 
Yeah, and I, you know, I think what what you saw in part with the schools is, uh, in many cases, there were sufficient number of teachers, and and maybe the cases weren't weren't uh, huge among students in certain schools, but there weren't enough support workers. There weren't the bus drivers. There weren't uh, food service workers, and I think you're you're seeing that increasingly in all sorts of industries where you know commerce is impeded or services are stopped because some chain along the way is broken and whether and whether it's political or it's sound medicine i don't know but the cdc and now the state of arkansas has adopted have adopted guidelines and they're only guidelines are not requirements in any case that that provide a means to going back to work or back into classrooms where you may or may not still be a carrier of, of the virus. You know, it's, I mean, there's sort of when you need to take a mask off and how long, if you can go back, if, even if you're asymptomatic, you can go back. And I mean, it's, 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 not, a, it's not a recipe for, for a real lockdown, such as been successful in places like China, but I think they've recognized that it's pointless to try and demand something like they do in China because people just simply won't do it. Yeah, so you, I think, alluded to this earlier, but the the response uh, from state officials, particularly the governor, has been sort of the same. Uh, this is serious. Get vaccinated, but I'm not going to force you. No, I'm not going to declare an emergency. I'm not going to require masks, and I'm not going to require vaccinations. And in fact, he says it in a way that says that those things would be bad things, that they would impinge on our freedom and, and somehow discourage people. I, I don't know what better evidence of the failure that policy is than our high COVID rate and our low vaccination rate. But but that's, that's I mean, and, and he would argue that he can't get it. And he says, I can't get anything done anyway because the legislature won't approve it. And, and that's true. But it's. And it was why I want to say, I don't know if you were going to mention it, why I really appreciated the statement that Chris Jones issued this week. He's the incredibly qualified, talented, likable, wonderful Democratic candidate for governor. He's one of four, and he's got to win a primary first. And I don't want to say I've decided who I'm going to vote for in that race, but he's a pretty impressive candidate. But he issued a statement this week that's on January the 6th in which he said, we know who's responsible for what happened that day. And Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who's a Republican candidate for governor, knows what happened that day and why, because she was part and parcel of the kind of lies that were the hallmark of the Trump administration. And, and I raise that in the context of Asa Hutchinson's response to the COVID problems, because sometimes, even when it's not good politics, it's better to be honest than to be right. Even, even if it doesn't necessarily advance your political agenda. I, I think there's a, a growing belief, even among Democrats, based particularly on the governor's race in Virginia, that, that building a campaign on attacking Trump is not a winner, that it's a loser. And, and, you would, and if that's true in Virginia, which is trending blue, it would be true in spades in Arkansas, which is a dedicated red state now. But Chris Jones decided that, you know, sometimes you just got to tell the truth. And he did, and he wrote a tough statement, and I appreciated it. And, and I sometimes wish the governor would do the same. I mean, he, he you know, he, he came in on the lawsuit 
trying to uh, overturn the ban on on mask on mask mandates, and he signed the bill. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, he should the least he could have done was not sign the damn thing. But yeah, and and after that that lawsuit was successful, he's he still refused to say that school districts should require masks. He's always yeah. says if it's appropriate. But it's if appropriate it's, everywhere. If it's appropriate and you have the power. Yeah, I mean, the state is now 100% in serious high rate of transmission. Masks are appropriate everywhere. Good masks. N95 masks. The, the virus is transmissible by airborne droplets. A good mask is helps prevent that from happening. And it doesn't hurt anybody. It's not harmful to wear a mask. It's a little bothersome and inconvenient, and that's all. But he can't even bring himself to say, I, I can't make you do this, but I really wish you would. And, and he just can't bring himself to say that. Well, all right, let's move on. We we will be sheltering in yeah, place well, like many others, but uh, it rages on. Uh, so Little Rock Police Chief Keith Humphrey has been in the news pretty consistently since he took that position uh, he he was in the national spotlight in december huge piece by uh, radley balco mostly for the washington who writes mostly for the washington post but this is for the intercept that uh, i'll admit I, I haven't had a chance to read yet but i I'm, broad strokes i think was that uh, humphrey was a reformer who was you know the target of uh, the FOP and, and others trying to undermine him. Um, and that there's a racial element in it because he's, he's an African-American. Right. Uh, and on New Year's Eve, Humphrey was on patrol. Uh, Little Rock, like a lot of urban cities, uh, has a celebratory gunfire problem. And he, he went out uh, perhaps as a symbolic gesture, but ended up firing his gun in a, in a disturbance, a, a shooting, and he's now on administrative leave pending an investigation by the state police. Yeah, and there's just an awful lot about this we don't know, which is interesting because you remember how quickly the city moved to be transparent when when Charles Starks killed Bradley Blackster in a traffic stop. Uh, it is uh, shut down information about the chief uh, unlimbering his, uh, his gun at a parking lot disturbance. The, the story was, is there was a fight going on in a parking lot in a convenience store on Asher Avenue. He got news of it, pulled up in his SUV. And his story and the police story to date is, is that he saw a woman firing a gun at another woman and he fired on the woman. Uh, and the woman's shot wounded the other woman who was in the parking lot dispute. Uh, I haven't yet seen anything to dispute that those are basic facts. What we don't what we don't know are a lot of things that some police say are worth knowing. For example, would it have been better? Did when exactly did the shooting occur? Was it after the shooting? Was it before the shooting? Could if he had arrived with a siren and blue lights flashing, prevented the shot from being fired by the woman in the first place? don't know. Another really critical issue that they won't answer is, is there are reports that after saying senior 
people are going to be on patrol New Year's Eve, and I want them all to wear a body camera. He did not. And so he would violate it in violation of his own order. Uh, that's an interesting point along with another, and I'll say why in a minute. There's, there's also the question of how he was handled that night. The, the departmental rules say when an officer is involved in a shooting, they take him to a certain place at 12th Street Station for a drug and alcohol test and do an interview. Well, in his case, he was taken first down to the police headquarters, which is a, a break from custom and, and ordinary custom and practice. I bring this up because there are two different things at work here. One, the state police is, is investigating the shooting itself. I think the odds of there being any criminal liability for the chief for firing his gun that night when there's evidence that there was somebody else in a parking lot firing a gun is nil. Uh, he, will, he will not be found criminally liable for firing a shot that night, which, by the way, we don't know where that shot went. There's some suggestion maybe it hit a police guard or some who knows where it went. We don't know. Uh, well, then will the also, state police produce a report that that, that uh, when their investigation, they will make a report to the prosecuting attorney, and he will then decide whether there's any action required based on that report. I'm confident the state police will say this is what happened. He feared the safety of others, and he fired his shot. And, and the but that will become and the prosecutor will. Info. That will, when it's completed, and when the prosecutor makes his decision and closes the file, then it will be public. And I'm confident, unless there's a dramatic change in circumstances from what we know now, the prosecutor will say he was he was justified in firing that shot. So there's no action to be taken on my part. But then there's a separate thing anytime a Little Rock police officer uses deadly force, and there's an internal review of that action, and that includes whether they followed good police procedure. You may remember the Charles Starks case. His problem wasn't so much that he killed somebody, but I think, but that he didn't follow proper procedure and how he did a traffic stop and blocking the car and, and what he did when the other car started moving and firing at a moving vehicle. There are lots of rules that apply. And we have some, some circumstantial evidence that the chief didn't follow his own rule on wearing a body camera. And we don't know exactly what the circumstances were in the lot and whether he followed all the procedures on use of force in that given situation. Maybe did, maybe didn't. I just don't know and wouldn't hazard a guess. We do know this, however, when he was relieved from duty, <laughs> the person put in charge was the per his handpicked successor as the top assistant police chief, Crystal Young Haskins. And she's the person who will choose who does the administrative review that makes a recommendation to her on what action should be taken. I like his chances of getting cleared under the circumstances by the police department review. Now, I happen to know there's a guy out there who's kind of a, a gadfly on police affairs who has a series of FOI requests pending with the city of Little Rock. And as of yet, they're stonewalling him, and some of them, I think, illegally, and he may get some of the stuff eventually. It's things that are under investigation. Are, are safe from opening at some point. And if he doesn't get any disciplinary action as a result of this, in theory, that that investigation might be able to be kept secret. I think the mayor would be under a great deal of pressure to, to, to reveal whatever it found about that night. But because, And he's been a defender of the chief up until now, but that's that's all yet to come. But all of this is kind of just more haze over a situation that doesn't seem to be getting any better. The majority of the city board is not 
in the chief's camp. They're not very much in the mayor's camp. Uh, the chief has done some reform things, but I think he's made some improvident managerial decisions. And he's not a very good communicator. And 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 the FOP, while that Rally Balco piece really was a richly detailed account of some some bad actions on the part of the police union toward the chief. And and you can't deny that there's a racial element to it because the FOP tends to be controlled by white officers and they're at odds with the black officers group and the chief is black. And and I have a great deal of sympathy for that, but but I don't think that the chief is without without fault either. And so we have a situation where it's just, and I don't, I don't see it resolving easily anytime soon. It's going to be a big issue in the 2022 mayor's race. I mean, Steve Landers is already making it one in his social media post and what he's saying around town, whether it's enough to change the outcome of that election, I don't know, but, but I know John Brumman of the Democrat Gazette wrote a pretty good column on it this week. And I mean, he, he made the point, which I think I've made here before, which is whatever else you think and about the things that have done or not been done in the Scott administration, he hadn't delivered on this promise of a new, brighter, unified LeBron. If anything, I mean, outwardly, outwardly, outwardly we've seen maybe even more divided when we were when it began. And so that that's going to contribute. I don't know how that shakes out in terms of voting, but I mean, it's going to contribute to a, a public perception and feeling about things. And so I think that's going to be one of the big stories of the year, really, in city government is, is, is how this proceeds. Uh, but anyway, my prediction is no criminal liability for the chief and at best uh, a, a slap on the wrist for not wearing a body camera the night he fired the shot. But yeah. a lot of people who will criticize the outcome. Sure. Well, yeah, it's going to continue to stay in the news. I, the the unifying thing, though, I, I may have said this before, but I mean, there are, there are plenty of reasons to criticize the mayor and, and the police chief and, and how he's handled things. Certainly fair game. But I mean, some of the the disunity, I mean, how, how can you unify a city if 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 uh, huge portions of it just don't want to participate. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm not saying he created that. I mean, if if anything, he's guilty of over-promising and and hyperbole, I think. I mean, you know, I think, I mean, I don't, I don't, I certainly don't question his desire to achieve that outcome. And I think, and I think I would be the first to join in with some of his strongest supporters and saying there's a racial element in some of the resistance to it. As a black mayor, I don't think there's any doubt that that's true. I'm, I'm sympathetic to that, but I, but I don't separate it from the fact that he's not somebody who admits error very readily and, and has, not, has not been much of a consensus builder. Yeah, well, to, tune in to the city board if you want to see evidence uh. of- of that it it is and i think there's blame around but it it's it is hard to watch i really really wish somebody would take time to do, just do a clip show of of uh the highlights of the board because it, it gets wacky almost every meeting yeah there's uh there's a lot of ill will there yeah all right. Well, uh, let's let's quickly talk. Uh, it was the anniversary of the January 6th insurrection yesterday, and 
Arkansas's congressional leaders were MIA. Uh, A few had some some pretty worthless statements. Uh, Tom Cotton predictably said something risable. Yeah, he said, I mean, his response to the anniversary was to call Joe Biden a liar, basically. Well, no, in fact, I, I really had a quibble today with the Democrats because that lead headline on page one, which was something like delegation ruse events or something. And I mean, then they did, but they're not, I mean, their statements with the one exception of, of Steve Womack really didn't, well, none of them mentioned Trump, first of all. And they really didn't talk about what happened at the Capitol January 6th. I mean, Prince Shield gave this really sanctimonious statement about, I love the Capitol Police, but he and every other member of the Congress from Arkansas were no-shows at the, at the moment of silence held in the House to observe the day and the prayer vigil that night on the Capitol steps. They, they were nowhere to be found because I think they're, in fact, now a growing theme from Republicans that, the January 6th riot has been overblown, that maybe it was uh, a product of an FBI plot or Antifa plot, and that not that much damage was done, and it was it's just politics, and we need to move on. And so I, I think they're such cowards, or, or else they believe that, too, that they don't want to be associated with anything that suggests something terrible happened that day, and something really awful happened that day. And the evidence mounts that it was encouraged by Donald Trump and orchestrated in part. Not every single person who went in the Capitol that day, but a significant number of them were, were agents of people working for Trump in this war room they had at the at the hotel and near the Capitol. And you know, uh, maybe some of this will come out in the the, the House committee hearings, but it's kind of like I've said to you before. I, I just think the ability to get that message through to the true believers who are who are legion is is just a long shot at best all right well once again let's leave things on that depressing note and move on to endorsements what do you have for the new year well one of my christmas gifts was a it's probably a 15 year old book uh about a current just utter passion of mine because of the hours I spend on the internet, and that's elephants. I just, I'm crazy about elephants. And so I read a book, uh, one of my guests was a book called The Elephant Whisperer, and it was a guy who ran a a giant game preserve in uh, Zululand, a real conservationist, interesting guy. Turns out he died nine years ago, which I didn't recognize until I read the book. But it's just about rescuing a herd, herd of rogue elements and kind of getting to where he could communicate with them. And, and I mean, elephants are not just all gentle, kindly beasts. I mean, they can be extremely dangerous in, in the wild and are. I mean, they're enormous. They weigh 20 tons. You know, they're these giant things. And anyway, it, was, it wasn't the greatest written book in the world, but about life in Africa and life in the Zulu culture and a white guy kind of learning his way among the tribes of Africa and all that sort of thing. And, and elephants are just so amazing. You know I mean? Just reading about what they do and they're able to do and they can, and the way they communicate sometimes over vast distances. The rest of the story is why I bring this all up on Facebook yesterday, there's a video I stumbled across about the elephant whisperer. 
and it was it revealed to me that he died in 2012. And the day after he died, at the end of a 12-hour march, two herds of wild elephants turned up at his house. Wow. They don't know why, they don't know how, and stood vigil at his house for two days and then, then lumbered back into the wilderness. It, it just looks like nothing so much as they knew this great friend of theirs had died and they showed up to pay tribute. Just crazy about elephants. Anyway, that's all. Wow. <laughs> I endorse elephants. I endorse elephants. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good rebound for that depressing note that we sounded pretty much the whole podcast. Uh, well, I uh, consumed a lot of culture over the break, and I have four very quick recommendations that are all kind of bummers in a way, but 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 have uh, have some brightness and and hope built in. Two TV shows that are on right now. One is the adaptation of Emily uh, St. Mandel's um, Station Eleven, which is on HBO, which is set. Funny you didn't mention that. Well, go ahead. Well, it's set in a in a in a, a world uh, before and after a, a plague that has killed like ninety five percent of of the the world's population. But it's really not about people getting sick. It's about people living and relationships, and then people trying to make sense of life afterwards. Uh, and and really kind of the the power of storytelling. But I just think it's brilliantly acted and shot. It looks so good. It can be a bummer, but it also, there's a lot of hope in it. I really like the first two episodes. And then when she's grown up and in the Traveling Shakespeare Troupe, episode three, just, I started having trouble with it. I don't know why. And it may be, I've read, you know, I read the book and so I know pretty much what's going on and that that may help fill down i talked to a friend who had some trouble with a, a few episodes but really like that really like yellow jackets uh, it's on showtime right now it's about a, a teenage uh, uh girls soccer team who are going to nationals and they they crash on this deserted island i guess in somewhere in canada maybe and spend 19 months or something there but it's it goes back and forth between uh, them as youngsters, uh, both before the crash, during the crash, and then them grown up uh, 20 years later, probably. And uh, clearly some bad stuff happened on the island and, and they've covered it up. And some of the characters as teens don't survive. And there's probably an element of cannibalism involved. Mm. Uh it's great and also really well acted. Melanie Delinsky, uh, who who's been in a number of things I really liked, is a star. Uh, and then two two books: uh, one, a children's Bible by Lydia Millet, uh, which was really acclaimed, I guess, in 2019. It's uh, about this uh, group of friends who uh, rent a house and uh, are the parents are just all awful. They're drunk all day and ignore their children. So it's, it's told it's narrated by uh, the children and who were kind of feral. And um, it, it becomes sort of about climate change and, and gets pretty dark, but it's hilarious also. And then uh, Gary Steingart's uh, our country friends. I think that's what it's called, which is, uh, you know, been called the first great book about the pandemic. And it, it is set during, covid times and 
It's about a group of friends that isolate together in upstate New York. He's one of my favorite authors, and this might be his best book. Uh, it's it's funny and sad and um, really moving at times. So that's what I got. Sounds good. All sounds good. All right. Well, well, thanks for listening all. Stay safe out there, and we will be back next week. Take it easy.